Welcome to the PEDSNP, Pearls of Pediatric Evidence-Based Practice. I'm your host, Dr. Becky Carson, pediatric nurse practitioner and assistant professor at the Catholic University of America. This is the third episode in a series on health equity in pediatrics, generously sponsored by the Dr. Rashida Monroe Health Equity Grant, funded by the North Carolina chapter of the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners. In this series, we're exploring issues related to health equity, vulnerable populations in pediatrics, and best practices that pediatric providers can implement right now to create safe spaces for our patients. Because 95% of pediatric certified nurses and nurse practitioners identify as female, and 75% identify as white, but a majority of the children that those of us in the majority will serve will be different from us in some way. And while there are major changes that need to happen in policy, culture, and society, there are changes to your practice that you can implement today that will make a difference to your patients without waiting for those pervasive societal problems to go away. Health inequity isn't too big a job for one person to make a difference. You just have to see that you actually do have a role in making change. In our first two episodes, we discussed the need to first identify your implicit bias, then approach every patient with a lens of health equity so that you can become a partner in the equity care plan, not just an authority in healthcare. But before we get to our next episode, I need to ask for your help so that we can better understand how podcasts impact your practice, either in a tangible front lines bedside kind of way or even to just get you mentally ready to change your practice when the opportunity arises. Why do I need your help? Because if we're going to make progress in the uphill battle against eliminating disparities, we need to be on the same page and know whether what we're doing is actually working. So I'm asking listeners to complete an anonymous one-minute survey for every episode they listen to. The data will help us understand the impact of listening to a short podcast on your practice. I promise it'll only take a minute and it is so important to help. The link is in the show notes or you can visit thepedsnp.com and click take a survey on the homepage. I'll remind you and give details about how to win a gift card at the end of the podcast. But first, let's talk about microaggressions. I was catching up with one of my friends who's a certified pediatric nurse practitioner, pediatric psych mental health specialist, and psych mental health nurse practitioner. She's a hat trick of NP skills. She's brilliant and black. We were talking about the black experience in America and in healthcare, how it can be surprising when she hears blatant comments with racial undertones, and even more awkward to respond to them. Even in this day and age, the subtle slights about how she looks different from the white majority are so culturally embedded that they sneak into everyday conversations. Like the story she told me about walking around her own neighborhood with a neighbor. Let me set the scene. My friend is cool, full on trendy, with short, naturally curly hair and thick rimmed leopard print glasses. She was getting in her steps with a neighbor, as they often do, and the neighbor happens to be white. They ran into an acquaintance of the neighbor who was also white. They exchanged pleasantries and continue their exercise routine. Later, in a private conversation with the neighbor, the acquaintance remarked to the neighbor, I didn't know you were so culturally diverse. 
wait, what? Say that again? Such a simple encounter, so innocuous the comment. But I furrowed my brow and tilted my head. What was that supposed to mean? What assumptions does that statement make of the neighbor? What stereotypes does that impose on my friend? Microaggressions are outward slights, snubs, and digs rooted in racial bias and designed to send the message that the recipient is less than, which can marginalize an individual or group. We call them micro because they're subtle, small, meant to blend in with the rest of the conversation, and therefore can be brushed under the rug as innocent, harmless. But they aren't just a faux pas of naivety, and they can be really psychologically damaging to the recipient. Whether intentional or unintentional, the source of the comment is power, where when it's combined with explicit or implicit bias, is intended to denigrate the person whose identity is part of a certain group. Microaggressions are frequently related to race and ethnicity, but they can also affect other groups that have been historically marginalized, such as LGBTQIA communities or people with disabilities, among others. The behavior is intended to quietly belittle and invalidate the recipient in a minute way. Though over time, when doled out over and over again in society, the seemingly minuscule offense chips away at the stone. Defendants of these interactions may call them innocuous blunders and testify to their innocent and naive purpose, like a white person going up to a black person and with fascination touching their hair. But there's a strong scientific link between people who admittedly commit microaggressions and whether that person scores high on validated measures of racial bias. Microaggressions can take three forms. First is microassaults. These are more conscious, deliberate statements of racism, like lock your doors when you drive through this neighborhood. Then there's microinsults. These are behavior or verbal remarks that convey rudeness, insensitivity, and demean a person's identity like complimenting a medical student of Indian descent on their English, even though, um, I was born and raised in New Jersey. And then there's micro-invalidations. These are verbal comments or behaviors that exclude, negate, or nullify the thoughts, feelings, or reality of a person, like someone standing up when a black person sits next to them on the metro. What's so harmful about microaggressions? Well, since they're entrenched in racial bias and power, their influence on the individual is to invalidate their group while perpetuating the harmful beliefs and bias. And that brings us to the point of intent. Microaggressions may not be intentional or viewed as hurtful by the donor at all, but every action has a consequence, whether it was intended like that or not. So what happens when the disguised slight happens in the workplace? My friend has been there too. It happens all too often, she told me, as she recalled the instances when she calls a patient from the waiting room and they ask, wait, are you our prescriber? Before she's even had a chance to say hello. She tilted her head and laughed it off to me saying, who else would I possibly be? I understand that I could be the registered nurse who would take their vitals. But I sometimes wonder if I looked different or if I were a male, would they ask the same question? 
And when I do virtual appointments, I sometimes get a look of shock when I appear on the screen for a new patient. They look at me as if to say, oh, we didn't know that it would be someone who looks like you who would be our prescriber. Microaggressions have major implications in healthcare, depending on everyone's role and the power dynamics that exist between them. For instance, patients from racial or ethnic minorities may have altered decision-making as a result of a provider's implicit bias that can affect their health outcomes. Or, healthcare providers of color may be subject to trauma that can affect their work performance if a patient expresses disguised offenses. Demeaning invalidations could also come from a colleague on your own multidisciplinary team, which could also have hierarchical and power dynamics that complicate the encounter. I asked my friend how she feels with these types of microaggressions professionally and whether it affects how she feels about the relationship when a parent diminishes her role based on her appearance. She told me that she always introduces herself with her credentials, defines her role, and describes her skill set, and it's never been a problem after that. But she admits that she makes many conscious decisions to preemptively impact people's opinions, from the way she wears her hair to the way she speaks. Although the responsibility should not rest solely on her shoulders, she feels societal scrutiny and the duty to represent women of color in her role. Actions rooted in racial bias cannot go unchallenged just because discrimination has modernized itself to be less conspicuous. But would you feel comfortable being an ally and interrupting microaggressions in the act? Would you even recognize one if you saw it? Sue et al.'s 2019 article in American Psychologist gives four goals to white allies who are confronting racist behaviors. One, make the invisible visible. Two, disarm the microaggression. Three, educate the perpetrator. And four, seek external reinforcement or support. The second half of this episode will work on identifying microaggressions and workshopping how you can react based on the work by Achalonu et al.'s 2020 publication in MedEd Portal. Let's start our exercise with the best practices we need to combat microaggressions. Best practice number four of our series, use curiosity to confront microaggressions. Now there are two steps to this. First, Mentally separate microaggressions from the person, then explore the assumption or stereotype that was exhibited by showing calm curiosity. Okay, how do you separate them? And what does calm curiosity mean? Well, don't label the person as racist, homophobic, transphobic, etc. The comment or behavior was unfair, not the person who said it. But you can certainly tell them the impact of their statement, even if the intent was not to be harmful. That comment came off to me as transphobic. Because we don't want to point fingers or place blame, asking, what did you mean by such and such, can open up the person to clarifying and even apologizing. Be careful not to ask why, because it can feel accusatory. Why did you say that? Can put the commentator on the defensive. Even as you come to the protection of a member of a marginalized group, be careful not to make assumptions about how that person felt from the microaggression. 
you can only own your own feelings. So make that clear. Like, when I heard you say that our patient looks like a boy in a dress, it sounded judgmental to me and made me feel like you didn't appreciate her gender identity in the way she asked us to. What did you mean by that? Or you could be really blunt and clear. That comment could be interpreted as transphobic. Gender expression is deeply personal and should be respected. Always remember that 98% of what you say isn't in words, but with tone of voice, body language, and eye contact. It's difficult to decide whether to speak up against a microaggression, and there's no right or wrong answer when decide whethering it's right for you to do it. You may need to consider who the recipient or marginalized group is, and whether you're also a part of that group. Who holds the power dynamic in the relationship? Will there be a continued relationship with the person, or is this a one-time encounter? Is now the right time to say something, or would it be better received later? Could you do so privately? What are the repercussions if you say something? Like I said, it's not easy. Now, let's role play. You're a hospitalist nurse practitioner caring for a child that's admitted for pneumonia. Multidisciplinary rounds are underway in your patient's room, and the attending physician, Dr. Z, who identifies as a black woman, just walked in to participate. The mother of the patient exclaims, Oh, good, they're here to take away the breakfast tray. What do you do? Pause. Take a moment to reflect and separate the statement from the mother before you approach it with calm curiosity. It's certainly a microaggression rooted in the racist sentiment that a person of color is more likely to be a member of a lower-paying job than a key decision-maker on the medical team. Realize that implicit bias may also be present, but not necessarily the intent of the statement. Maybe the mom made an honest mistake, but her cultural conditioning has convinced her of the stereotype. Let's try to assume the best. You've paused and reflected. Then you notice Dr. Z looks shocked and doesn't know what to say. The rest of the team looks down at their shoes. You feel comfortable with the power dynamic in being a valued member of the healthcare team and decide that this is a short relationship with the mother. So you're confident interrupting the microaggression to show your support for your colleague. Actually, Dr. Z is our attending physician on the team. I wonder what made you think she was part of dietary services. Oh, she's wearing scrubs? Well, I am too. Next time, you can also look for these name badges that we all wear that say our role on your child's healthcare team. Dr. Z, what are your thoughts on this chest x-ray? How did that feel to interrupt the microaggression? Could you have said that? Let's try another scenario. You're in urgent care where the wait time is three hours and your white colleague just came out of the room of an African-American child with fever for one day. The nurse drops by the provider desk to say, the mom asked if you could prescribe Tylenol and ibuprofen. Your colleague responds with, it's over the counter, she can just buy it. The nurse protests, well, I think that her Medicaid would pay for it if you write a prescription. To which your colleague rebuttals, did you see her nails? If she can afford to get her nails done, she can afford five bucks to buy ibuprofen and Tylenol. The nurse gives up trying to advocate for the patient after two failed volleys. Have you heard someone say this before? I have. 
What could you say to interrupt the microaggression rooted in the false stereotype that people with Medicaid insurance are cheating the system and shouldn't be able to use disposable income for pleasurable things? You separate your colleague from the comment. And to avoid any public conversation, you wait until everyone else leaves the area and then lean over to say, hey, that comment sounded judgmental to me and could be interpreted as racist. I know we're understaffed and you are working so hard, so thanks for being my partner today. Help me understand what her nails have to do with getting the child prescriptions for over-the-counter medications. Then your colleague responds, I don't see color. I treat everyone the same. Whoa. Pause and regroup again. That's another microaggression, so we need to start our process over. Pause and separate the comment from your colleague. That response was defensive, and while the colleague denied explicit racism, the comment was teeming with implicit racism. What could you say to disarm round two? How about, the comment that you don't see color makes me feel like you don't see everyone's differences and experiences as important. I'm curious how you're able to recognize implicit bias in your practice so that it doesn't impact your clinical decision-making. See what I did there? I interrupted the micro-insult and labeled only what I felt. The identities and experiences of people of color matter. Then I asked a how question that brings up a very important topic of recognizing your own implicit bias by picking apart the assumption that was made of that invalidating comment. When interrupting a microaggression, it's important to appeal to our common values while promoting empathy, respect, and partnership towards health equity. Before we finish, there's one group I'd like to address because working in pediatrics tends to bring up the topic. To all the nurse practitioners and students out there who care for children without being parents of their own children, I want to arm you with an important micro-intervention. If anyone ever questions your medical decision-making by asking, do you have children? I want you to say this to the inquiry. I have a graduate degree as a nurse practitioner, and since every child is uniquely different, including yours, I care for each child using my advanced knowledge, skills, and extensive pediatric training. Can you elaborate on your question and what it meant to you? Because your relationship status and family planning is your business and has nothing to do with your ability to be an awesome pediatric healthcare provider. Having children was not a requirement for admission to your academic institution. It wasn't a part of your coursework. You didn't have to have children to pass boards, get your job, or be credentialed. Don't ever let anyone who asks you this question make you feel like you're somehow not qualified to provide healthcare for children because you don't have children. When you hear microaggressive slights, I hope you'll remember the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We will have to repent in this generation, not merely for the hateful words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of the good people. And when King asks, life's most persistent and urgent question is, what are you doing for others? I'm pretty sure he didn't want us to answer that we were staying quiet and looking at our shoes. Learn to intercede in these crucial moments by being the one who asks questions so that there can be clarifying conversations 
about how these words perpetuate harmful stereotypes and assumptions that permit bias, prejudice, and injustice. Now let's talk about that post-survey. Simply go to thepedsnp.com and click Take the Health Equity Survey at the top of the screen. The link will take you to a one-minute survey all about the episode you just listened to. Please, please follow the link and help us learn about podcasts. Once you submit the anonymous voluntary survey, you'll get the link to a page where you can enter your email to win a $15 Amazon gift card. There have already been two winners. I won't share your email and it's not for marketing purposes. It's just to pick a winner for the raffle. Whether you enter the raffle or not, thank you for completing the survey and sharing your feedback. Your participation is so important, so please take a moment to complete the survey, then share with a friend, your colleagues, and your classmates. I'd like to thank the diversity, equity, and inclusion experts who generously volunteered their time to serve as consultants and editors for the content in this episode, which was generously supported with funding from North Carolina NAPNAP's Rashida Monroe Health Equity Grant. Follow me on Instagram at the PZNP Podcast. Email me at thepedsnp at gmail.com. You can complete the survey, see show notes and references at www.thepedsnp.com. And remember, this isn't just a podcast. Interrupting microaggressions is an important step in being an ally in health equity. I'm Becky Carson. Take care.